This is Joshua Holland for The Nation, and I'm joined now by David Farris. David is the Program Director of Political Science at Roosevelt University, and he's the author of a new book titled It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. So we're dealing with a structural imbalance, an asymmetrical political war, if you will. Democrats, and I think liberals more broadly, are are trying to defend institutional norms that have long made our clunky system of government more or less functional, and I'll stress more or less, and their opponents appear willing to do anything to exercise and maintain power, including riding roughshod over those very norms. In essence, you're calling for Democrats to fight fire with fire, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think we've seen an escalating process of institutional and procedural warfare being used against us over the last 20 years. And I think it's long past time uh, that Democrats and, and the left more broadly started to understand what was happening to them and, and to use the powers that they that they will have the next time they're in power um, to fight back in kind. Now, I, I, listeners to this show are pretty familiar with some of the undemocratic moves that um, the Republican Party has undertaken in recent years. We've spoken to the authors of that San Diego, uh, UC San Diego study about um, strict voter ID laws and how it how it suppresses the vote of Democrats by 8.8% and Republicans by 3.6%. And talk about California having the same number of Senate seats with millions and millions of people as a tiny state like whatever. Uh, Wyoming or, or Montana. Um, what are the main things that you're, that you're looking at as far as the way that Republicans have rigged the system? Sure. Well, you know, in, in some cases, Republicans have rigged the system. and in, in some cases, the institutions are, are kind of stacked against us based on how the Constitution is, is written and it's been interpreted. Um, I think the most outrageous example of, of institutional warfare was, was the Merrick Garland fiasco. Um, that I mean, every time I think about that, it makes my blood boil. But Me too. it's just—it's uh, just outrageous. I mean, they stole a seat on the Supreme Court, um, and they did so because the Constitution does not is not specific enough about what advice and consent means. Um, and so there, you have a very good example of Republicans finding a kind of a loophole in the Constitution and then exploiting it really ruthlessly when they had the opportunity. Um, look at it more broadly, uh, as you know, these, these voter ID laws, um, it's not just the voter ID, but it's also things like felony disenfranchisement laws, um, all of which together have the impact of driving down democratic turnout significantly. And they do this really unapologetically. You know, in some cases, they've been caught on tape, you know, talking about how these laws were intended to drive down turnout for Democrats. And yeah, I think the gimmick of the book is that um, a lot of the things that drive us most crazy about our political system are not written into the Constitution at all. Um, and uh, the Constitution doesn't say, uh, have much to say at all about voting rights. And so the reality is that a lot of these problems are are vulnerable to a, a dedicated Democratic majority um, rewriting the laws and, and playing hardball. And um, and so that's, you know, fighting dirty really means leveling the playing field, you know, fighting, fighting back in kind, uh, passing a National Voting Rights Act that'll uh, eliminate these voter ID laws that will um, restore voting rights for all ex-felons, that will uh, create a, a national voting holiday, it'll automatically register all, all Americans to vote. Um, this is low-hanging fruit. You know, I mean, this this could be done with, in a month the next time the Democrats take power. 
And so the book is kind of a call to arms. You know, we need to get smart about these things. Um, we need to fight and we need to, we need to level the playing field. And, and I think we can defend these things as a, as a project to improve the, the long-term performance of American democracy overall, build trust in the system. Yeah. Uh, David had a brief drop out there and he was talking about making a national holiday for voting right now. <clears throat> although some state, many states have early voting, election day is on a Tuesday. And that means that a lot of people who are, work for a living have a hard time taking it off. And, you know, other countries vote on Saturday and Sunday. So let's talk about a few specifics. Let, let's say, hypothetically, that the blue wave that we're all looking at, that we're all hoping for, materializes in November. And then Trump loses in 2020. 2020 will also be a year when Senate Republicans face a lot of exposure. It's the kind of inverse of 2018. So let's say Dems end up in January 2021 with the White House and solid majorities in both chambers of Congress. What are you proposing they do other than th things that we've already discussed? Sure. Well, I think um, one of the first things they're going to have to do, un unless they win a supermajority in Senate, is to eliminate the filibuster. You know, I think the filibuster is... Uh, sort of anti-democratic relic of a, of a bygone age. Um, and I don't think it's justifiable from a democratic theoretic perspective, even right now. Um, so once they get rid of the filibuster, they can do all kinds of things. Um, the first of which should be granting statehood to Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, um, which is a, the situation in those places is just, is just outrageous from, from a democratic, small D democratic perspective. Um, they, they don't have voting representation in Congress. Um, in DC, they don't have really control over the city budget, and these are states that would that would easily uh, send four Democratic senators to, to DC. Uh, yes. It would instantly change the strategic uh, balance in, in the Senate. Um, if we had done this already, we'd have the Senate right now, um, and we would not have to worry about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health or Anthony Kennedy's health. Um, we could just we could just stonewall Trump and not and and return the favor from Merrick Garland and not approve any of his nominees. So it would really be uh, a huge help in terms of rectifying what I see as a, a structural imbalance for the left in the Senate, because there are probably 29 or 30 states that lean Republican and, you know, 20 or 21 that lean Democratic. And in a vacuum, you know, you take this sort of monumental incompetence and stupidity of the Trump administration out of the picture. Uh, I think that Democrats are, are, are going to lose the Senate more often than they win it um, going forward. Um, and they have to do something about that. Um, and, and so DC and, and Puerto Rico, those, those are, that's low hanging fruit that could be done in weeks. Um, you know, a, a sort of a longer term project I think would be to really seriously think about breaking California up into, into six or seven pieces, um, instead of sending two senators for, for the 38 million people of California, we could send 14. Um, it would change the math in the electoral college. And it's also not unconstitutional. Um, it would be a heavier lift. It would take longer. Uh, this is not a day one thing. But I think it's something the party needs to get serious about. If the if if so much of the energy on the left is in California, uh, it's kind of bottled up right now in those two Senate seats. Um, so those you know those are a couple of things. I think we also need to really think hard about how we elect the House of Representatives. Um, you know, last year Republicans won the national popular vote for the House by a point, but still had this huge seat majority. Um, it's not the first time that's happened. In, in 2012, Democrats won the national popular vote for the House, and they still lost the chamber dramatically. Um, so I have a, a plan in there about how to, how to sort of move the whole country past these destructive gerrymandering battles, um, create larger districts, um, increase the size of the house, 
um, and all of which would, I think, make the results of those elections more proportional, make it make it harder for Democrats to, to win popular votes but, but lose control of the chamber. I think it would invite third, fourth, and fifth parties into the process in a more meaningful way than they are now. Um, and that's also that also is a day one thing. Um, the elections clause of the Constitution clearly gives Congress the right um, to, to set and alter policies for federal elections. Um, so there's nothing stopping us from doing that except a sort of lack of imagination and a lack of will. Um, so, and I'd start, you know, I'd probably start with those things in the Voting Rights Act. Um, and then there's a, there's a court piece here too. I don't know if you want me to talk about that now, but, um, so it's, think of it as like kind of a blitzkrieg on, you know, the first three months of the next Democratic administration, assuming they have control of Congress, could really take some important steps to, to level the electoral playing field moving forward. Let me play devil's advocate here. You mentioned the courts. I think probably the most controversial or arguably the most controversial thing you call for is um, packing the Supreme Court to get a progressive majority. By the way, it's a progressive majority that the court should have. Merrick Garland would have been um, the tipping point that would have given the court its first liberal majority since 1973. That's how consequential Mitch McConnell's sabotage or, or theft of that Supreme Court seat was. Um, so, and I do mean that I'm playing devil's advocate because I, I tend to agree with you that the Dems need to bring a gun to a gunfight. The question is, where does it end? So you pack the courts, um, that recovers a Supreme Court seat that was stolen when he when Mitch McConnell uh, blocked Merrick Garland for a year. Doesn't that give the next Republican president and Congress a president for doing the same thing? Or if both parties stop respecting the minorities' rights to influence the government, if both parties um, no longer feel some fealty towards the norms that made these institutions function, where does that end? It's a great question. Um, and it's something, you know, I wrestled with when I was writing this book. Um, I do think, I do think that the Merrick Garland theft is, was a much more serious escalation than we think. I mean, it, it's not just about the sling seat on the court, you know, like Neil Gorsuch is illegitimate in my mind and there's no question about it. Uh, but if you think about the underlying norms about how Supreme court appointments get made, they're already gone, you know, and the Republicans prior to the election, when they thought that they were going to lose, uh, made these noises. John McCain and Ted Cruz went out and talked about how they, if they controlled the Senate and Hillary Clinton won the election, they weren't going to let her fill a, a Supreme Court seat. Um, and so I think that, that the other side is already deeply radicalized. Um, there are plans floating around the sort of right-wing judicial universe, uh, very similar to what I'm proposing in this book, and, and they are not by fringe figures. Um, one of those articles is by Steve Calabrese, um, who's one of the sort of intellectual fathers of the, the originalism movement. Um, there's, there's articles out there about jurisdiction stripping, which would be Congress passing a law um, depriving the Supreme Court of its ability to rule on certain issues. And I, I think, frankly, that the entire architecture of judicial review um, is, is in jeopardy um, based on the increasing radicalization of the right. Um, so I, I am concerned about retaliation in the future. I think one of the ways um, that Democrats can, can describe what they're doing when they do this is to offer an olive branch. Um, they say, okay, instead of packing the courts, we could do this other thing. Um, and that would be passing a constitutional amendment to, to end lifetime tenure on the, on the Supreme Court and in the federal courts more broadly. Um, there's also a law that I talk about in the book called, uh, that's uh, crafted by this organization, Fix the Court, um, that would routinize uh, appointments to the Supreme Court without a constitutional amendment. 
Um, whether that would stand up to court scrutiny, we don't know. Um, but I think if Democrats pitched it as like, look, we're the ones that actually want to take the partisan temperature down. We want to end these destructive partisan battles over court appointments by more explicitly spelling out the constitutional language about uh, how they get made and when they get made, um, how many appointments each president is, is, is entitled to, um, rather than it being what it is now, which is a lottery. Um, we, we say each, each president gets to appoint two justices in every four-year term. Um, people leave after 18 years, so we don't have to appoint these like doogie houses to the court anymore. Um, we, we can go with people in their late 50s and early 60s who, who might not have 30 years in them, but might be a better choice in terms of their underlying abilities. Um, so, of course, yeah, I'm concerned about retaliation. I think that there are ways of presenting the move as, a, as like, a, you made us do this because you won't do this other thing. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, I'm pretty convinced that we're, we're not that far away from the right choosing to do some of these things first. Um, and the, the last thing I would like to see is that the Democrats maintain this commitment to institutionalism and, and pragmatism and then once again get outflanked by, by this escalation from the right. I think one thing that's inspiring conservatives to do all of these things is a sense of both um, both that they're facing demographic headwinds, uh, that they may not, that their, their core coalition, um, which according to Alan Abramowitz is married people who, married white people who identify as Christians is, is rapidly shrinking. Um, I don't buy the demographics as destiny argument, but the demographics certainly as a coming advantage is something that I think is pretty clearly recognized by both sides. And then the other thing is that they know that the policy preferences that they advance tend to not be popular. So do you think that Democrats have failed to fight fire with fire because of these things? Do you think that they've kind of told themselves, well, you know, young people skew our way and we have this growing Latino vote and they're skewing our way, Asian American vote as well, and, and our policies are popular, and that's why they haven't fought back in the same way? I think that's, it's, it, it does have something to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a little bit too much belief in the, in the sort of long-term demographic trends. If you remember uh, Roy Tashira's book, um, The Emerging Demogra uh, Democratic Majority, from, I think that was from 2002. Uh, and so that's, you know, that was 16 years ago and things have not exactly worked out as, as we thought they would. <laughs> you know, one yeah. of the problems is that, you know, percent of the population doesn't vote and we don't know that much about those folks. Um, and so when a few more of them come out to vote as they did in 2016, it can really upend these demographic expectations. Um, I think in the long run, um, the, the, the Republicans have a demographic problem in a, in a variety of ways. I think one that gets talked about a little bit less is the way that millennials are skewing so, so heavily towards Democrats. Um, if you look at the data from when we started tracking this in 2004, Democrats have enjoyed about a 20 point advantage on, on partisan ID with, with millennials who are now the, the largest living generation. Um, and as much as we, we, we like to romanticize young people and think that they always leaned left, they didn't. You know, young people voted for Reagan, um, young people voted for Nixon. Um, and this is unprecedented. I mean, this is really unprecedented for, for this enormous block of young people, an entire generation, um, to be skewing in, in, in the Democrats' favor by, by this large of a, of a gap. Um, and so I think that there is maybe, at least prior to 2016, there was a sense that, okay, well, demography is on our side, and surely 
surely the American people will punish the Republicans for the way they've been behaving over the last eight years. Um, and that just didn't happen. You know, uh, that was one of the most depressing things to me about the 2016 election is I, I also had the sense that surely like right will win out here, you know, that like, people will look at what Republicans have done in office and this obstructionism and just destruction of norms and threatening America's credit in the world. And, and they will, they will vote them out of office and they didn't do that. And so I think that we can't afford um, to wait for these demographic trends to fully vest. You know, I don't know that enough sort of elderly white Republicans are going to die in the next three years um, to, to really give us a lasting majority. I, I think that we need to get a, a bit more creative. In, in addition to exploiting those demographic trends, um, we need to get creative about our, our procedural warfare. And the other thing, as you point out so well, is that, you know, we don't know where the end to these uh, anti-democratic <clears throat> policies might be. So, you know, just recently we see this this introduction of a citizenship question into the census. It is yet another creative way of um, gaming the system in a way that advantages Republicans. And I'm seeing people who are, you know, very savvy about these things debating by what um, by what margin Democrats need to win the popular vote in order to secure a majority in the House of Representatives. It should be 50% plus one vote. And yet we're hearing anything from, from between, they need to win anywhere between four by four and 12 percentage points to actually win the House. And this is just, it's maddening. It's maddeningly undemocratic. I would say that everything that you say in the book can be framed as a pro small d democracy agenda. And uh, I think it's really important that Democrats pursue this. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, it's some of the some of the ways that our procedures lead to undemocratic outcomes are, are really outrageous. Um, you know, for the House, I'm thinking of 2012, you know, when we, we won the popular vote, we, we had a, a minority. Um, and I, I just don't think that we can we can continue to assume that the policies and the, and the sort of underlying rightness of, a, of our cause is going to be enough to overcome these structural barriers um, because so far they haven't been. And I think one of the big, big advantages of doing some of these things would be that they will put us in a much, much better position for the 2022 midterms. Um, if, if we are able, knock on wood, to take power in 2020 with the presidency and, and Congress, um, I think you know, restoring voting rights for all these folks um, and, and the election holiday and, and really passing a law that makes House results fairer makes it much, much less likely that we're just going to turn power right back over to these guys in 2022 like we did last time. Um, because the reality is that the trajectory of the, the Republican Party right now is so dangerous, so destructive, uh, that I really, really believe that Democrats need to win three, four, five national elections in a row um, in order to, to bring this country back onto the track that it needs to be. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think that it's in, important that uh, I, I think that the, the best hope for a silver lining in Trump is that his victory in the, in the Electoral College, uh, along with events like the theft of the Supreme Court, are finally opening people's eyes up to the fact that, you know, it, it is good to have uh, civility and bipartisanship and all of that in the abstract. But when you get down to where the rubber meets the road, 
you know, we have to exercise power um, if we want to maintain our values. And that those values include uh, pluralistic liberal democracy, small d democratic values. David Farris, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Josh. Thanks so much for having me on the show.